Well, it's my great pleasure to introduce Chris to you. Chris has been uh, with us as a church before, and he's spoken at one of our conferences. If not two, I'm, I'm, I'm losing track. Anyway, it's a bit tricky to say. Kim and I feel it a, 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 well, it is a great privilege and a pleasure to actually count Chris as a friend. And uh, I've been in this house many times. <laughs> and I remember when we turned turned up to be there and live in Reading and be, I felt like we lived in Bethel for three months and uh, we went into the first staff meeting and, and Chris said three months three months and uh, it was unusual at that stage for people to go and live and but uh, Chris was a very important part of our lives while we uh, lived there for three months and very much opened doors for us and I remember one time when we we're sitting in your office and uh, he literally turned our world upside down in, inside an hour and a half. And so, so I know of the gift that is within him. Also, the heart that is within this man is extraordinary. He's an extremely compassionate man. I know that. Um, he's, he's an emotional guy, and that's, that is worn on his sleeve without a doubt. And uh, he's been serving this nation. He loves this. I think it's fair to say he loves the nation. Coming back, if you don't love it, you, you saw sure coming back. It was a forward squad a lot. So, but, and it's, it's our great delight to welcome you. So can we welcome Chris Fallis as he comes to speak to us? Thank you very much. Well, it is a privilege to be here, and you can turn me down probably a little bit because I haven't started preaching yet. <laughs> it's a privilege to be here, and I, I was here way before you got this building, so I don't know. How many of you were here five years ago? You were here five years ago. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And the rest of you? <laughs> just want to say, good thing Jesus didn't come back when you weren't here. You've been reading those books left behind. <laughs> I think that's an American thing. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, so we've just been having a really good time. And uh, obviously, this is such a Kairos moment in the history of, uh, of uh, England, right? And the whole Brexit, Brexit, however you say it. Sorry, did I get it close? Okay, exit Brexit. Yes, I've been... And uh, I really believe that, you know, the Lord told me when uh, when uh, you guys left the EU that um, this was his re-identification project. So, and we were meeting with some political people during that time and that, that word wasn't so great. <laughs> Let me say this, not everybody clapped that we met with. But uh, when we asked the Lord, and I asked the Lord, like, why did they move out of the EU? The Lord said they lost themselves in the in the context of the bigger picture, and they've lost the sense of who they are. And so this has been really, like, I am so really excited for the epic transition that you guys have made. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm sure not everyone in this room voted that way, so I, I'm not making a political statement at all. I, Try even though we minister to political people, I try really hard to not get under the political spirit and just try to say what God says. That's I'm like every time I get afraid, the Lord's like, just say what I say and don't worry about what they think about it. So I don't really care about you folks. <laughs> it's really nice. British humor is so so good. The rest of the world doesn't like it, but you and I, we get along really good. And, uh, and so I, I feel like this is a Kairos moment, you know, uh, when divine favor meets divine opportunity. And um, I'm, it, I can't even tell you how, how excited I am for this 
time, um, I, I would call it, I was going to say a season, but the Lord corrected me about a month ago, and he said, this isn't a season, this is an era. Right? Seasons come and go, but eras, they, they tend to last for generations. So I believe this is a new era, and I believe it's going to, I believe it's going to create uh, a whole new, um, a whole, well, let me say this. It's a little bit of back to the future. I'm sorry, I'm just mumbling right now. Just I'm rambling. So this is not my message. At least I don't think it is. Let me say this. It's not the message I planned for you. <laughs> but I, I, I think this is a little bit back to the future because I actually think you're getting back to your apostolic roots. And there's something about nobility and royalty. And we have this conversation with some of the, uh, some of the um, governmental leaders yesterday, I believe, and we were talking about that each country actually has uh, a prophetic identity in God. And we were talking about some of the different um, eth- ethnic groups and how sometimes it feels like you're stereotyping people, but you're, some of it is, some, some of it's stereotype, but some of it is acknowledging the special gift that they bring to society. And all I'm getting at is that I think that like God made plants and flowers different colors and he made tr- all different kinds of trees, I, I think that it's, it's important to just have a sense of what role you play in the earth. And it's like, it's not that I have the mind of Christ, it's that, that we, we together have the mind of Christ. And so I was, so we were talking about this whole concept that Ethnic groups really do carry a different kinds of anointings, and it's it can be, of course, perverted, and it can be it can be enhanced to be a prejudice. But there is just a natural thing, and we were talking about the difference between Americans and British people. And you know, Americans, I, I, I've traveled enough to know that Americans are known to be brash, bold, and some things you can't use words you don't use from the podium. And, uh, and the, you know, Britain has ruled much of the world before, when, before there was planes. <laughs> like when you, when there, this little island with its small population at one time ruled, I think, I forget what the percentage was, but it was like 25, 30% of the world and you had to get there through ships. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what the Mexicans were thinking, you know, when they saw you guys come on ships. Like, here comes the British. Oh, there's only eight of them. <laughs> and pretty soon, you know, they're all driving on the left-hand side of the road. <laughs> of course, I'm being funny. But uh, there's, there's something about the, you know, and so we were talking about the difference between uh, American, um, you know, Americans' boldness and British boldness, like British... Boldness is always, um, like, you guys are, like, raised in royalty and nobility. So learning to manage your emotion is a part of your culture. Like, you would, where Americans are like, we're just like, whoa! <laughs> like, we just say it, and like, if it's too bad, it's like, you know, look at Trump. Like, it's like, <laughs> I mean, who hates Trump the most? The British. 
What a surprise, you know? And we are Americans, you know, we do like, we like, we don't like him because he behaves like that. And then we realize like, we behave like that too. Like it's kind of American thing to not care what you say and then tweet it, you know, but. There's something about British people that they've learned how to sit at the table with a knife through the throat because they were raised by royalty. And so even though you guys are known to be bold and brave, that you, that you, um, you encapsulate your boldness with the restraint. And by the way, you didn't use it at all at worship tonight. So I'm like, you're learning when to ditch it and when to use it, right? Which is, I was like, wow, these are British people. And they're like singing. <laughs> Fairly loudly. And shouting things. And I'm like, whoa, they've been trained by Americans. <laughs> We'll know that you're trained by Americans in worship when you shout like things that offend people. <laughs> That's an American trait right there. We just say it and then we just like defend it, even though we know we're wrong. But anyway, I, I, I'm saying all this to say, I believe the Lord's returning you back to your royal noble roots, which I think got homogenized into European culture and you've kind of lost who you are to the world and you're not bringing the full potency of who you're supposed to be as a people group, as an actually apostolic nation to the world. And I believe the Lord's re-identifying you. When I say re-identifying you, I'm like back to, back to your roots that I think you've lost your roots. And uh, it's even in your music. I mean, you know, the British invasion, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones can't get no satisfaction. So um, anyway, all that to say... I don't know if you're excited about the season, but I'm super excited about the season, about this era that you're in, season, the era that you're in as, as Brits. And I hope that you're excited about it. And um, so, okay. So uh, why don't you grab a hand and we're going to pray. If, you, if you'd like to date the person you're holding hands with... And, See, everybody that comes to my conferences regularly, they sit strategically. <laughs> so it's usually like, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy. So you can just squeeze their hand if you like to date them. If it's yes, just squeeze back. Okay. I'll pray slowly. This is for the single people. This is the most exciting part of the meeting for the single people. Okay, you can let go of hands. Now we're going to pray. <laughs> Holy Spirit. We just thank you for what you're doing tonight, Lord. We just bless the people. And Lord, we bless the speaker. Lord, anoint the speaker. I'm praying for y'all. You all have sat under a non-anointed speaker before, right? Okay, so just shut up and let me finish. Lord, bless the speaker. Do not humble him right now. And Lord, we just pray for a spirit of revelation to be in the room tonight. And we pray that you would just move powerfully and profoundly in the midst of your people. Lord, that you would reveal things that have been hidden and that you would, you would unveil things that have been kept in, in, in darkness. And 
Lord, we, we pray that you would expose things, beautiful things, treasures, secrets that have been kept forever. The eons past that you want to reveal in this time. Lord, we pray for a deeper revelation of, of Jesus. We pray for the unveiling of God Himself. Lord, we pray for un- the unveiling of the daughters and the sons of God. We pray, Lord, for an epic move of Your Spirit to unveil Your people for who they are and what they're called to be and do. Lord, we just pray for that right now. We pray for the anointing to be in the room, to see things that haven't been seen in, in generations or maybe maybe in human history. You ask for ears to be open to hear things that have never been heard before. And Lord, we pray for hearts that can perceive and process this information in a way that gives uh, glory to, to God, but also that that um, that reveals the goodness that you've put in us as your daughters and sons. And we bless what you're doing in Jesus' name. Um, I want to talk about becoming an apostolic people. And, uh, you know, I understand this apostolic church, and so I'm not, I'm not like, this teaching isn't... I did this teaching in our own church, so I'm, I think that we're on this journey together. And uh, this is probably, I doubt... I mean, I may not say anything you haven't heard before, but it'll be funnier than you've heard, <laughs> most likely. Um, so I want to talk about four attributes of apostolic people. I, I don't know if I'll get to all four. Uh, can you tell me what time is supposed to be done? Is there a clock somewhere I'm supposed to be watching? Oh, preach the eternal gospel? <laughs> the reason we wear a watch is to see what the date is. Okay, um, so so four attributes of apostolic people. I, I don't know if I'll finish this honestly, but so we um, we are a covenant family. So number one is we're a covenant family, therefore we blo- we belong, and we are not together because we agree. I I want to tell you a story. I've told it's in at least one book, and I think I even shared a piece of this, but it was many years ago. I, I had this encounter the very first year I came to Bethel Church, and I was laying on the floor in our little apartment. That we had, and um, and the and the Lord spoke to me, and He said, "We're moving from denominationalism to apostleships." Ask me what that means. So I said, "What does that mean?" I knew it had to be the Lord because I don't use words with that many syllables. <laughs> and I said, "What does that mean?" He said, "In denominationalism, people gather when they agree, and they divide when they disagree." It's denomination. It's divided nations. We are Protestants, which comes from the word protester. So in, in denominationalism, we gather when we agree, and we divide when we disagree. But he said in, apostle, in apostolic, in, in apostleships, he said, we, we, we don't gather because we agree, but we rally around family. And we go, there's my father, there's my mother, there's my brothers, there's my cousins, there's my crazy uncle. And by the way, every family has a crazy uncle, do they not? Like, that's the uncle you don't want to come over when your friends come over, right? Because, you know, you choose your friends and they choose you, but you don't choose your family. And he said this to me. He says, I'm about to pour out revelation 
on this generation that's been held in the vaults of heaven for the eons of ages. But he said, if I pour out revelation on a wineskin that people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree, it's going to rip the wineskin. And this, this encounter I had lasted, I don't know, a couple hours, and the Lord began to talk to me about the importance of the wineskin. You know, Jesus put new wine in new wineskins, not no wineskins. And so what is a wineskin? It's, it's new wineskin. It's, it's current and it's flexible. And so the Lord began to talk to me about denominationalism. And by the way, just to be clear, I'm not talking about denominations. I'm talking about denominationalism. It's like communism. It's like the spirit that divides people. And I think, uh, I think that there is much denominationalism in apostolic networks as there is in denominational churches. So I want to say it doesn't matter what it says over the door of your church. It only matters what it says over the door of your heart. And before I go on too much further, I want to say that I think doctrine's important. Like, I think that doctrine is, is paramount in our lives. But I, but when we gather, when we agree, and we divide when we disagree, what do we make, you know, if I'm a shepherd in a denominational ism church, and if I don't say ism, I always mean ism in this context. If I'm a shepherd in a denominational ism church, what do I have to make sure people don't do i have to make sure they don't they don't disagree right because if we gather when we agree and we divide when we disagree how many know the one thing i'm concerned about as a shepherd is that we don't disagree and by the way let me give you a little parenthesis how many times has the catholic church split in 2000 years well i said never but a catholic theologian wrote me and said twice i'm like okay two times in 2000 years how many times has the Protestant church split in 500 years? Okay, let's slow it down. How many times has the Protestant church split in the last 30 days? Okay, so now, let's think about this. What do the Catholics call the leaders of their individual churches? Father. And the challenge that many of us as Americans have with the Catholic church is they don't know what they believe. Like individual people don't read the Bible. So I'm not saying they don't. I'm saying that's our accusation against them. But they, so, so my point, here's where I'm going. So in denominationalism, we gather when we agree and we divide when we disagree. So what do I have to, what, what do I have to make sure my people don't do? Disagree. What's it take to have a disagreement? Let's not get too deep here. Think American. What do we have to do to, to have a disagreement? We have to have an opinion. What do we have to have? What's it take to have an opinion? A thought. What do we have to make sure we don't do? Yes. So the truth is, is that in denominationalism, we teach people not what to th- not how to think. We teach people what to think. Because thinking is dangerous business to denominational churches. Okay. Th- consider this. Have you noticed in the 20th, late 20th and 21st century that the greatest inventions the greatest innovations the greatest the, the greatest creativity was no longer coming from the church did you notice that in the information age that you have atheists and buddhists and people like that like steve jobs head of apple buddhists 
You got Bill Gates, atheist. You got Michael Dell. You know, you just go on. Like, find the believers in there. And what I'm getting at is, I see a change right now, so I can name some new people. But my point is, is that, why, how many believe that when you received Jesus Christ, you became born again? How many believe that when you, that when you received Jesus Christ, that you received a new mind? How many believe that when you received Jesus Christ, that you received wisdom from another age? Ephesians 3. How about 1 Corinthians 12, you actually received a gift of wisdom? How many believe that when you received Jesus, you were actually seated in heavenly places with Christ? So how many of you know that you live here on earth and you live in heaven? And in, Rome, in Revelation chapter 4, Jesus said to the Apostle John, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. How many know your heavenly seat gives you eternal perspectives? Are you with me at all? Am I losing you? How many know that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet of the entire Old Testament, but the least in the kingdom is greater than John? So that would mean that John was greater than Daniel who was ten times wiser than all the wise men in Babylon. That he was greater than Solomon. And I could just name all these Old Testament people who were brilliant. But the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Which means if Daniel was ten times wiser than all the wise men, and he actually wasn't born again, didn't have the mind of Christ, wasn't seated in heavenly places, didn't have the, wasn't endowed with the wisdom from another age... How many understand that you have more potential than Daniel? And I made a list one time, unfortunately I don't have them with me, but of all the advantages that you have over an unbeliever. So the question is, how come the greatest inventions, the greatest innovations, the greatest creativity, and so on and so forth, how come it's not coming from the church? You know, Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel, not because of his religion, but because he was brilliant. I wonder why the first question on every application around the world is, are you a believer? <laughs> Even by atheists le- leading companies, like, I like to hire those Jesus followers because they're like so smart. Well, you're not even getting where I'm going. Now you got that real Brit look. Now you've, you've re- <laughs> You've reverted back to that. Uh, My point is, is that, and I'm going somewhere, I think I know the answer. In denominationalism, I'm actually taught to not think. I actually create a culture where if I'm a shepherd in the denominationalism church, I preach to convince you, not to inspire you. Because inspiring people to think is dangerous business. It's the way we divide churches. And the way I choose churches is by what I agree. By the way we agree. It's the political spirit. Well, we, we won't even touch that with our president at this moment. But anyway... But in apostleships, I don't choose the church by their belief system. I choose them by the family. In other words, if I'm in a family, how many know in a family I can disagree? And still be a part of the family. 
In a family, I, I, I can have a different idea. I could even think differently about a subject. I mean, I have permission to think. One of the challenges that we have at Bethel is that people view Bethel through a denominational lens and wonder why certain people say certain things and they think that because certain people say certain things that we all agree with that. We're not streaming, are we? Because I know a really good way to never come back to it. So Benny Johnson posts some her perspectives on Trump and we're all like, you guys are all following Trump. You all vote for him. Like, how would you know that? Well, Benny Johnson. Well, Benny Johnson has a brain. She can think for herself, but I also have permission to think for myself. And what I'm getting at is that it's not guilty by association because our people have permission to actually think for themselves. So when we're preaching, we're not telling people who to vote for. (laughs) I'm simply saying that we're so accustomed to one person thinks for everybody. So if someone makes a statement like, they all think like that. Like, no, I work on both sides of the aisle. I loved President Obama when he was president. I didn't agree with lots of his stuff. And I love President Trump when he's president. And I, I, there's lots of things I don't agree with with him, including his Twitter account. <laughs> I just, by the way, I've been studying Winston Churchill. I think Winston Churchill was one of the finest leaders in the history of the world. And I don't know if you, you're okay with this. But he had some flaws very similar to Trump. Thank God he didn't have Twitter. So it does astound me that you guys throw stones and forgot your history. Because I just watched The Darkest Hour twice in two theaters, one in America. And then the other night we watched in British, what? In London, we watched the same movie. The response was quite different. <laughs> as soon as the movie was over, the Americans got up and left. When the movie was over, true story. Movie was over. The Brits sat for minutes, <laughs> considering their history. <laughs> and I wanted to get up and yell. And you guys don't like Trump. I mean, hello, the greatest leader, one of the greatest leaders in human history had some issues, like he drank from morning till night. He's known to be kind of nasty to work with. Gosh, where did that come from? And I'm simply saying, it's like, can you love someone who isn't perfect? Do I have permission to find good in someone who's got lots of flaws? (laughs) You didn't know I was going there, did you? I'm making you think. And so we see people in our movement, and by the way, I'd consider you y'all, in our movement, and y'all ought to know that because Bill gets up there and says, da-da-da, or writes a Facebook page or a Twitter, it doesn't mean we all agree. It means he's our dad. 
And I kind of figure when you get a certain age, you just say whatever you want. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm trying to say? My grandfather, I got to tell you the story of my grandfather. It has no relevance except for this age thing. My grandfather was, uh, he was about, I don't know, five foot six, and he was wide. Not fat, just, uh, he's a farmer. You know, we don't have people built like that much anymore. The people that grew, grew up on farms, right? They just kind of like, they're a little overweight, but it's, there's kind of muscle in there too, right? And my grandfather, he always wore coveralls. Uh, you guys have coveralls here? What do you call them? Dungarees, yeah, they have straps, right? And they're kind of jean material. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and he didn't wear underwear. Now, now, if you knew him, you would know that because he didn't button the side buttons. It's a true story. And he had, uh, had, he had a gum disease, and so they pulled all of his teeth out, except for the four eye teeth. I have no idea why they did that. And they gave him what, you know, false teeth, but he called them his choppers. And he, he, they hurt his gums, so he, he carried them in his coveralls, like right here. And when he walked, he just, he didn't really walk, he kinda, and he liked to suck, I can't, you can't do it unless you're missing all your teeth and have four teeth, and he suck his gums in. That's how my grandfather, that's how my grandfather was, and he's the most influential person in my life. And I'm simply saying, like, we just grew up knowing that, you know, your dad is your dad. He's got his opinions. He's, he's not trying to impress anybody with his clothes. And you just get to a certain age, it's like, you know, I got my woman. <laughs> and I got my job. And I just, you know, and I, I, I'm like, I, I'm reminded of Churchill is kind of like that. Like Churchill just like says what he wants to say. And, and you know, some of the most famous sayings, you know, I forget one of your really famous women was with him and said, if I was your wife, I'd, I'd, I'd put poison in your tea. And he said, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> right? this, is your, this is Churchill. Not exactly, you know, politically correct. I would propose. But there was a time when you loved people because they were your father. And you didn't think it was your job to like criticize everything they did and everything they do. And, you know, there was a time when you're like, this is, this is our dad. Yeah, he's a little crazy. But he's my dad. He's a little crazy, but he's the father of our country. Yeah, and it's probably why we're not all speaking German. So in the midst of, I drank too much, he's kind of grumpy and crasp and wasn't friendly at times but on the other side of that saved saved all of us i'm speaking german (laughs) there's just something about accepting people for who they are and breaking that political spirit that has infected the church where every leader we have we feel like we have to critique and criticize we can't find anything good in somebody because they don't behave as perfect as we do and i wonder if that's even true I wonder how it would be for any of us if a camera followed us around 24 hours a day behind the scenes. And if people were politically motivated to spill the beans of what we said in private. I wonder how many of us would 
pass that litmus test. And I'm just going to say, greatness is not without flaws. So in denominationalism, we rally around truth. We, we, you know, we rally together when we agree and we divide when we disagree. And by the way, I want to tell you that that's the political spirit. But in apostleships, we rally around fathers and mothers. And we're like, that's my dad. He's not my perfect dad. He's my dad. There's my mom. She's not perfect, but you better not talk about my mom. Especially. I can talk about my mom, but you better not talk about my mom. There's my brothers, my sisters, my cousins. And what happens is we're bonded through relationship. Not out of agreement. And that means... You can have an opinion that's different than my opinion, but we're still together. That means you can think this way about that political person, and I can think this way, and it doesn't mean we're divided, because we're not bonded because we agree. We're bonded because we have a covenant. Many years ago, first uh, three years, uh, so let me say this, I've been with Bill 40 years. This is our 40th year. Um, we were together in, in a little town called Weaverville for 17. And then Bill went on to Bethel to lead Bethel. And Kathy and I followed two years later to start the school ministry. It was a dream come true. Um, maybe I should tell you about that. So we were to, apart for two years. It, it, you ever have a relationship that needs a break? I would say our relationship needed a break. Like we need, it needed breathing room. We had raised our kids together. We had actually lived together for six months. Bill had three, uh, two boys and a girl. We had two girls and a boy. Our kids dated. We were going to be part of the Johnson family, but didn't work. Now two of our grandkids like each other. It's, the dream is alive again. And, uh, and our, our relationship really needed to break. Like we were just together. You know, you know how you just kind of lose thankfulness for what you have and each other. And, and then about, um, so, about a year and a half into that break, um, it was during the renewal, the Toronto renewal. Um, my kids, my, my daughter and son-in-law were leading a, a YWAM base in Colorado. And they invited Bill to speak. And Bill said, hey, why don't you come with me? I haven't seen each other for almost a year. Why don't you come with me? And you could see your kids and we'll minister together. Da, da, da. So we were on this trip. And anyway, it was really good. And there's lots of things about the trip over the sake of time. But we were staying in this little cabin. It was a very small cabin, and it had a bed here, you know, a bed here and a bed here, and a bathroom. That was all that was in the cabin. And it was snowing, three feet of snow. And so we stayed in that cabin for five nights together in this little tiny cabin. And, uh, and, so, and again, I hadn't hardly seen Bill in over, over a year, so I'd get up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet, and Bill's bed was, like, right here, and the toilet was right there, and my bed was over here, so I had to pass him at night. And when I passed him in the middle of the night... He'd be completely asleep, and he'd be saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, you're amazing. Five nights of that. I'd be thinking, I don't even do that when I'm awake. And I, um, 
I got to tell you, by the fifth night, I was completely wrecked. And I, I began, my spirit, you know, like it's like a Barnabas and Paul thing. It's like there's just people you're supposed to be with, right? And I, my spirit would just like, I would, I just would get in my bed and I would cry through the night. So the ministry was all great. We get on a plane, we're flying home, we fly to San Francisco, we have a layover. So we're sitting at the table and, and I, and I'm like, I don't even know what to say. Like, I, I'm like, I'm having, you ever have, you ever have something happening in your spirit you can feel, but you don't have words for it yet? So I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm, I'm having this five day experience. It's not the ministry. It's the toilet run. Tonight, and it's wrecking me but i don't know like i'm trying to explain like i have words for now but it's happening below the conscious level like i can't get my brain around what's actually happening so i'm laying in bed and i'm weeping and i don't know why i'm weeping but it's happening every night and when i wake up in the morning it's like something in me something's happening but i don't know what it is and so we get to, and, and I'm, I'm afraid to talk because I, I tend to say what's ever on my mind, but I don't even know what's on my mind. Like something's happening. So we get to uh, the San Francisco airport. We're sitting at the table, and Bill's always quiet. You've had Bill here many times, right? And people always like, I don't think Bill liked me. Like he didn't talk, right? Yeah, no, he loves you. It's all good. <laughs> so we're sitting at the table, just getting ready, and and Bill's doing what Bill does. If I don't talk, he doesn't talk, and. And then finally he says, I want to start a school ministry and I want you to come start it. Well, I have four businesses. So I said, oh, you want, like, is it going to be night class? Because it's an hour drive to Reading. He goes, well, no, no, I want you to leave everything and come and start the school ministry. And then he goes, just like, just like as if it wasn't even a a speed bump. He goes, but I have no money to pay you. (laughs) Okay, I have 42 employees. In three locations, and I have four businesses that that have been running for 20 years, and he has no money. And I'm thinking, now my mind's like, uh oh, <laughs> you know, like this just doesn't make any sense at all, right? This is like this is not rational, like, you know. And I, and I have this like really small voice in the back of my head that sounds like Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> With questions like, how are we going to make a living and what are we going to do? You know, it's like all of, she's like the really logical one. But my heart goes, I want to do this. I'm with you, you know. So I said, you know, and I'm inside, I'm like, oh, but on outside, I'm like, like a Brit. (laughs) Think about that. So I get home and by the time I get home, I am complete wreck. And, of course, my wife wants to know about my daughter and son-in-law, who she hasn't seen for a year. And so I walk in, and, you know, and she's like, and I walk in the house, and she's like, hey, how are you doing? And I say, I'm in love with a man. <laughs> with tears in my eyes. I'm in love with a man. And, of course, she thinks I'm talking about Jesus. Of course, in love with him, but I'm in love with the man. She's like, oh, what's going on with the kids? I'm in love with the man. She's like, 
what, what's going on? And I kind of like eke out, like I was born to be with Bill. My next sentence was, I was born to be with Bill. Obviously, this is long before the homosexual movement, so it was like, that, that wasn't one of the, like, possibilities. It was just like, I said, oh, I was born to be with Bill. She's like, what happened? What am I tell you about? And so, through my tears, I tell her the story. And as I'm telling her, of course, words begin to come for those feelings. And so, you know, she's like, I mean, I've been with her since she was 12. So she's been here before. <laughs> Not exactly in love with a man, you know. But And so she said, well, honey, listen, this is what I... Th- here, let's do it this way. If the Lord speaks to me the same way, then we'll go. I'm like, okay. So she ends up going to the Morningstar Conference. That's another long story. And every day, we're talking, as the Lord spoke to you. It was like the next, this was like Friday, and Monday she goes to a prophetic conference for two weeks. So every day we're talking, like, has God spoke to you yet? No, no, no. The last day of the conference, Ray Hughes, I don't know if you know Ray Hughes, he's speaking, he gets 20 minutes into his message, he closes his Bible, he goes, I'm not supposed to do this. And he starts saying, he goes, I, I don't know what this means, but there's, there, I just feel like there are people in here, that you're, that you're in the mountains. Well, we live in the mountains. And you're supposed to go to Bethel. You're just coming out of the mountains and you're going to Bethel. Well, she falls over. <laughs> She's weeping. And, and he goes on about coming out of the mountains, going to Bethel. This is a movement coming out of Beth, out of, out of the mountains. He doesn't say we were, but coming out of the mountains. And all of that. And so, you know, obviously she's a mess. And this older lady puts her her hand on her and says, Honey, don't be surprised if what he said isn't what you heard. So she buys it in those days the VCR and the cassette, right? And she gets home and, you know, obviously called me on the phone. She said, you know, you're going to believe what happened. This man said, we're coming out of the mountains and we're going to Bethel. (laughs) And I fell on the floor and God spoke to me. So she gets in the house and immediately she goes, you know, let's put, we put the cassette tape in and we fast forward to where he says, I'm not supposed to be doing this. Let's, and, you know, and, and, and then he starts talking and he says nothing about mountains and nothing about Bethel. <laughs> so she gets the VCR. She puts it in. She fast forward to the place and she goes, it's right here. Watch this. And he says nothing about mountains and nothing about Bethel. And she's like, I swear. And then she said, when I was on the floor, a lady said, don't be surprised if what he said is not what you heard. So we end up at Bethel. <laughs> Another long story. We were there for three years. The first three years were tough, terrible, bad. All the negative synonyms that you would use as Brits when you're not talking in public. It wasn't going well. Bill and I weren't getting along. We had never actually worked together. Like he's, I never had, I hadn't had a boss in 20 years and we were just not getting along. It wasn't working. And so I went to this church. I was preaching in this little church on the coast, about 300 people. And the, and when, when I opened, when I got into the doors, the man who invited me, the senior pastor, I heard the Lord say, this man's leaving, but he hasn't told his flock yet. And they're going to ask you to be the pastor. 
So we go to lunch after I preach, and the pastor confides in me, hey, I'm leaving, but I haven't told my flock. And I'm like, they're going to invite me. Short story. Um, time goes by. I sit with Bill. I say, hey, these guys are going to, you know, this pastor just left. I happen to know for a fact that they're going to invite me to be their pastor, and I feel like I'm supposed to take that flock, and I figured it, Bill would be excited because we were not getting along. And he looked at me, and he said, I don't want you to leave. Do whatever you want, but it wouldn't be in my heart for you to leave. So I'm like, that was kind of surprising. So a few days go by, and, you know, and, I, and I have this dream. And in this dream... I see the church, which is about 300 people, but it has room for about 1,000. And in the dream, the church is packed full. And there are people outside, and there are speakers outside, and I'm preaching, and there's like 3,000 people. Just like, and the Lord said, if you leave, that's what will happen. And in the dream, I go, that's amazing. And then the scene changes, and all of a sudden, I'm like on the moon looking back at the earth. You know those pictures of the earth? And he goes, but you'll never touch that if you leave. And in the dreaming, he said, only you and I will know you failed. It'll be our secret. Only you and I will know you failed. It'll be our secret. So I woke up. (laughs) You've had those dreams, right? Sweat, heart pumping. And I said... What do I do? And he said, I want you to make it a covenant to be with Bill the rest of your life. And he said, if you do, then I will, it will be a foundation and we will teach the world what happens when prophets and apostles make a lifetime covenant to be together forever and you'll shift history. And, and I'm like, I said, I don't want to do that. And he said, then you and I, you and I will be the only ones who know you're a failure. So a month goes by. Well, first of all, I tell Kathy, you know, she's like, well, you need to do what God says. I'm like, okay, I'm not talking to you anymore. (laughs) So like two or or three months goes by, right? And I'm I'm like, this is not fun. I'm in agony. And I I avoid Bill completely. Like as soon as the meeting's over, I leave because I'm afraid. I'm like, I'm about to make a covenant with you forever. I'm like, I don't want to do that. So we end up doing this conference together in the mountains. It's a five-hour drive. Bill's driving. If I don't talk, Bill doesn't talk. That's the way our relationship works. <laughs> we're driving through the mountains. We're, we, we're half an hour from there. It's nighttime, and Bill's driving, and, and the, obviously the car's completely dark, and I'm in the corner, and as far as I can get in the front seat with Bill, there's just two of us. I haven't spoken in four and a half hours, which Bill's got to be thinking, this is a miracle. I haven't said anything. I didn't say hi when I got in the car. We drove, and I'm like, I'm in the corner. It's, it's, you know, it's totally dark, and I'm crying silently. And finally, in tears, I turn to him, and I'm like, it's a half an hour before we're going to get there. And I'm like, I better, I got I don't know, how are we going to do this? So I turn, and I say, God told me that I'm supposed to make a covenant to be with you the rest of my life. In tears. He's driving. Doesn't say anything. Three minutes goes by, he goes, yeah, thank you. (laughs) That was the whole conversation. (laughs) A month later, we're driving together with our wives in the car, and he goes, hey, you know that thing you did about a month ago with me? I'm like, yeah, vaguely, remember that. (laughs) He's like, yeah, I'm with you. I'm doing that with you too. And 
dollars a covenant. <laughs> and people are like, then you had a great relationship. No, then we had to work on it because we, we had two choices. I can be with him and be miserable or be with him and be happy. But not being with him wasn't an option. So then we had to fix our relationship. And that took another year. But you know what happens when you can't leave? Be surprised what grows in your character when you can't get out of relationship. And over the next year or two years, we started to actually work out our differences, get along. And, you know, and now we have a very beautiful relationship. And we're touching the world. I told you that because I think that this is the foundation of where we're going. It's not about being right. It's not about being perfect. It's not about everyone thinking the same way. It's not about everybody being alike. It's not about the clone zone. It's about a family. And families have challenges. People come all the time like, you and Bill have such a wonderful relationship. I'm like, whatever. We're chained together. I mean, what choice do we have? Like... And we do have a really great relationship now. But it came through disagreement, misunderstanding, pain and hurt, right? And only to the level that you love, to the level you love is the level you can be hurt. Like the transient that's on the, I don't know what you call it, like the, the homeless person on the street says bad things about me. It doesn't faze me. You know why? I don't love him. I mean, in Jesus. I mean, I don't have a relationship with him. I don't, he's not, my heart's not open. He doesn't have access to the inner place. He can call me whatever. Facebook people, oh, Chris Valentin, false prophet. People are like, how do you take that? I just ban him into purgatory. <laughs> I take on my Catholic roots and I'm like, you just go to purgatory. <laughs> like, does it hurt you? No, it doesn't hurt me because I have no connection to those people. The people that hurt you the most, like divorce, right? And I won't ask you, but there's divorce is like, besides losing the death of a child, divorce is the greatest tragedy, psychologists say, that you can have. Why? Because you let people into the deepest part of your heart. And then you try to pull that relationship apart. Are you getting me? And I'm simply saying there's something about moving back towards covenant. And I believe that most of the church cohabits. You know what a cohabiting spirit is? You remember Judas? Jesus kept saying, six months before Jesus was crucified, he, he, he consistently would say, one of you are going to betray me. And the disciples would say, who is this? Who is it? Now, how many know if, Jesus, if Judas couldn't do miracles, they would all, it's got to be Judas. Every time we pray for the sick, he goes potty. To the loo, you guys. Then, on the night that he was betrayed, right? We call it the Last Supper, but the Bible calls it on the night he was betrayed. Jesus takes bread and wine, and he says, let's make a covenant. And what does Judas do? He gets up and leaves. How many know? Why does Judas leave? Because how did Judas betray Jesus? With a kiss. How many of the Judas spirits wants intimacy without covenant? This is the cohabiting spirit. 
You probably all have friends that have one, two, three children, and they live together, and they've never made a covenant. <laughs> they've never got married. And, they, and you say, well, how come you guys aren't married? Like, you have three kids together. And they go, oh, it's just a piece of paper. Really? If it's just a piece of paper, why don't you sign it? I'll tell you why you don't sign it. Marriage says, I've come to lay my life down. <laughs> I've come to make a covenant. How many know marriage is a death march to a life camp? I've come here to die. For better, for worse. We repeat the covenant. I mean, we're smiling because we're going to have sex that night. <laughs> Sorry. It's kind of a Churchill thing I just said right there. And we're repeating like in goodness and in health and sickness and in death. It's like, you know, we're, and we're smiling. You know, and even thinking about what well, words we're repeating. I just said, I will lay down my life for you. No matter what happens to you, I'm staying with you. But how many know cohabiting says I'm in this for what I can get? So the reason why I don't sign a piece of paper that metaphorically says I'll be with you forever is because I use the fear of abandonment to manipulate you to get what I want. Because I'm not in this relationship for you. I'm in it for me. As long as you please me, I'm stay. But the day you stop pleasing me, I leave. And how many of you know, lots of the church, they come to church, but they never become the church. And that critiquing, critical spirit, we go home and we have this, the pastor's sermon for lunch every day. <laughs> well, I like this, I like that. And I choose my church based on the children's program they have. And I evaluate it like a hotel I stayed in. Because I didn't come here to lay my life down. I came here to be fed. Like we only eat like once a week. <laughs> anyway. Um, people say things like, Oh, a pastor just didn't feed me. I'm like, are you anorexic? I mean, how often do you eat? And all of a sudden, it's like, I mean, that's fine if you're a brand new believer. But if you're three years old in the Lord, it's like, you don't know how to feed yourself. There's something's wrong here. <laughs> Sorry. No one build tweets or, you know, put something on Facebook that people don't agree with. I mean, we lose, you know, hundreds of followers on Facebook. How many people left our church? Nobody. Why? Because they've come for a different reason. They haven't come for the sermon. They've come for the family. And they know dad has opinions. They don't necessarily agree with him. But they're like, it's our dad. He says some stuff I love, mostly. But then he says some stuff that, I, yeah, I'm not with you on that one. But it's not a political spirit. It's not, I didn't come here cohabiting. I've come here to lay my life down. I've come here to show the world what it's like, what real love's like, that I stay connected to people because I'm with them. You're looking very British today. <laughs> I should probably in there. I've caused you so much pain on point one. The church wasn't born in a conference. It was born in a covenant.
We've taken on society's values. And wonder why we feel lonely in the middle of a crowd. And I'd propose to you that we were born for covenant. We were born to be with people because we're with people. Not because they're right. Not because they're perfect. I have people come and complain about their leaders all the time. And I'm always reminded that if someone complains about someone else to you, they'll complain about you to someone else. That's their value. How many know that love covers a multitude of sins? But fear and ambition and all of those things, they expose people. We even think it's our job to like, let's just tell the worst things about people. Talk about someone's worst moment in public. Make them look really bad so I can look really good. It's like none of that stuff has anything to do with the kingdom. Now I understand there's a difference between a cover-up and a covering. I do understand that there are times to confront people with truth. In love, looking to yourself, least you also fall. Not in judgment, right? So, okay. How about if I do one more and we'll leave in a happy moment? And you won't be doing that. Do I do that? (laughs) Or I'm so glad Johnny's sitting next to me here because he really needs this message. (laughs) You know what's really funny? Johnny's glad you're here. (laughs) I'm going to just do one more and it'll take 10 minutes. We'll just do it fast. Is that okay? Okay, I don't want to, like, wear out my welcome. I don't actually care what you think. (laughs) I'm really not that brave. Second point, four attributes of apostolic people. Number two, we believe in the possible, therefore we can count on miracles to happen to us and through us. And I I just, this is so simple, but I just want to give you a few verses. These, These are verses that will be very common in this flock. Jesus, in Romans, Paul said, For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. I want to say this, that you're not called to be an optimist. You're called to be a believer. It's not the same thing. So how many know pessimism says the glass is half empty? The optimist says the glass is half full. But the believer doesn't care how much liquid's in the glass. He only cares about the source. How many understand the glass can be empty, but if you're a believer and God said it's going to be full, I'm not counting on what I see. I'm counting on what I heard. Luke chapter 1 verse 37, and you know these verses well, for nothing will be impossible with God. In Luke chapter 18, he says it this way, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. I love this one. The disciples came to Jesus privately. Oh, let me set this up for you. You will know this one. I'm just reminding you of the circumstances. And they had just come down off the Mount Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, right? If Ringo was there, they would have had a band. <laughs> so three of them went up with Jesus, and nine stayed. And you remember they encountered this kid that was demonized, and they tried to, the nine tried to cast the demons out. You remember this? 
And so when Jesus comes down, he casts the demon out of the kid, and that's where we picked up the story. And the disciples came to Jesus and said privately, why couldn't we drive out this demon? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. Everybody say littleness. Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you had the faith of the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. I always like this story because Jesus, you know, the disciples are like, you know, we tried. What, what happened? You just fall and, it, and he left. And Jesus said, because of the littleness of your faith. For if you had the faith of the mustard seed, <laughs> you would say to this mountain, be removed, cast in a seed, it would be done for you. And I always wonder if Jesus is saying like, listen, your faith is so small, smaller than a mustard seed. <laughs> like you see that mustard seed? Yours is like an atom, which is yet to be discovered. <laughs> This is kind of a funny analogy because Jesus says, you know, you had too little. Your faith was the littleness of your faith. And then he describes the mustard seed as if there's faith must be like very small because you can see a mustard seed. But the little, the word littleness in the passage actually means briefly. In other words, he's not talking about the amount you have. He's talking about how often you keep it in the fire. What he just said to them, listen. You guys have enough faith. You have a seed. But you only put it in briefly. And as soon as it didn't work, you quit. And it's, it relates to the Luke 18 passage, right? When he, saw, when he saw the disciples, Jesus talking to the disciples, thinking of the disciples, and, he, and, he, and he, he saw them and he thought that he needed to teach them that they needed to pray at all times and not lose heart. Remember, that's the opening, right? They need to pray at all times and not lose heart. That's the opening passage. So he told them a parable about a wicked judge. You remember the story? And the widow. And the, she wanted protection. And the judge was wicked. And he said, I'm not going to protect you. And she said, yes, you are. And she comes back. I'm not going to protect you. Yes, you are. I'm not going to come back. And, you know, and she goes on and on, right? And finally, the judge says, listen, not because I fear God and not because I like this widow. But because she drives me freaking crazy, I will give her what she wants. That was actually the translation of the Greek. <laughs> and then Jesus said, this is how Jesus ends. And so he gave her one. And then Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's the end of the story. In other words, Jesus equates faith with, I don't quit. One of the reasons why we don't see the impossible is because we take our little faith and we put it in there and go, didn't work, didn't work. <laughs> I have my students ask all the time, they're like, you, you, <laughs> you got to understand now, they're mostly millennials. So they, they say, they raise their hand when we have question and answer. Pastor Chris, like, yes? Uh, I'd like to ask a question. I'm like, okay. I'm like, I can tell by the way you're whining, you know. <laughs> wah, wah, send you whining. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay. I've been praying and fasting and for this particular situation. They maybe say the situation and, and, I, and it hasn't happened. I just don't even know what to do. I've just been praying. I said, oh, how long have you been praying? Three weeks. I've been praying three weeks. And they're like, and they think, oh my goodness. You know, and I say to them, you know, I know this won't sound like it relates, but in your grandfather's day, when he ran out of money, he couldn't buy anything. He's like, like, if you didn't have money, you literally couldn't buy anything. 
You couldn't put it on a credit card. He's like, I said, he's like, how does that relate? Because your grandfather and my grandfather had to persevere through hard times and they didn't get what they wanted when they wanted. They got what they want when they had money for it. And you live in an instant gratification generation and you take your credit card when you don't have any money and you just keep buying until you charge up that card and then you get another one and therefore you don't even know what it's like to have to actually wait. So then you come into the kingdom and you're like, I prayed for three weeks and it didn't happen. Oh my goodness, something's wrong. Or not. I'm saying perseverance is part of the way you win in the kingdom. It's how do I move mountains? It doesn't take a lot of faith, but it takes you keeping it in the game. Okay, well, that's be better. Anyway, well, it's good. No problem. No, too late. <laughs> Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I say to you, all things which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them and they shall be granted to you. How many know praying without faith is called complaining? <laughs> You're like, well, David did that. Yeah, but he didn't get what he asked for until <laughs> he changed his prayer. And I love David's Psalms because he'll say really bad stuff in the beginning. Oh, everything's terrible. Where are you? You can't hear me. You never answer my prayers. Gosh, where are you? My enemies are surrounding me. But the last line is always, then I came into the sanctuary. <laughs> he knows he's got to end on a good note if he wants to get anything from God, right? <laughs> And I, I, and I want to finish with just this idea. You know who Elon Musk is? Would you guys know who Elon Musk is? He was, he's the like founder of Tesla and SpaceX. And, um, and uh, I, I don't know what else he has. But in uh, SolarCity. And so, you know, Elon Musk is in L.A. traffic. You know, you guys even know what L.A. traffic is, right? So he's in L.A. traffic and it's bumper to bumper. And Elon Musk is in, in the traffic. And he gets this idea to build... Hyperloop tunnels. And he's, he's sitting in, in there and he's thinking about building hyperloop tunnels, you know, 17 dimensions deep and uh, a car that will go down an elevator, get on a skate and be sucked through a hyperloop at 120 miles an hour and go through the traffic. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm stuck in traffic, I think, dang, I'm stuck in traffic. <laughs> I wonder if there's a song on the radio I like. I mean, I've never been stuck in traffic and think, well, I think I should build a Hyperloop system. I don't know. You probably know where I'm going, right? So they interviewed him on TED Talk, and they said to him, you know, so, you know, what, do you, what are your goals? And he says, well, I want to colonize Mars by the year 2040. <laughs> now, let me back up. I've known some people who have been to the planets, <laughs> they were in my home group. <laughs> One time my partner was teaching, we were team teaching and we we're teaching through the book of Acts and his opening comment was, and we had, we had four transients in our home group. There was 30 people in our home group and four of them were transients because this gal led transients to the Lord and brought into my home group. And so we're sitting there and, and Charlie says, tonight we're going to study the sermon on Mars Hill. And one guy goes, I've been to Mars. It's a true, absolute true story. The other guy goes, well, I've been to Jupiter. And they begin having this conversation about interplanetary travel. So I have met people like Elon. 
And he doesn't want to just go to Mars. He wants to colonize Mars by 2040. Now you think, well, he's crazy. Yeah, but he just built the most powerful rocket in the history of humanity, and it's reusable. That's what happens when governments don't pay for it. (laughs) Business people build a rocket, they're like, we need the pieces back. The government's like, oh, just raise the taxes and build another one. And so he's talking about solar city and you know they and he says what you know the the moderator's like and why did you you know why did you buy solar city and when he says well i want to i want to cure um i want to cure climate control climate issues and he's going through us and so the guy finally goes why are you doing all this he goes because i want to wake up every morning and have hope and he said so and he's not a believer. And he goes, I wake up every morning and I think this planet is going the wrong direction. So I just think that we should go to another planet and start over. So that I can wake every morning and have hope. And I'm thinking, like, how come the guy that doesn't know God is thinking about hyperloops and curing climate change and interplanetary travel. And we're thinking about what Trump said in his last speech and how mad we are about it. Or what are we going to have for dinner? And I'm simply saying, like, aren't we the ones who are supposed to be, like, believing in the impossible? Aren't we the ones that are supposed to believe, believe in miracles? Aren't we the ones who are supposed to think big? Aren't we the ones that have the mind of Christ? Aren't we the ones that have, should have the biggest cre- you know, creativity, you know, invention, innovation? Shouldn't that be flowing from us? I'm simply saying, like, what would happen if we actually gave ourselves permission to dream? What would happen if hope started flowing from the church again? If we dump all that crazy eschatology, like the world's, you know, going to burn up and everyone's going to hell. Like, who's going to, like, work on cities if you have a negative eschatology? Didn't Jeremiah 29, didn't Jeremiah even say when people were in captivity that I know the plans I have for you, not plans of calamity, but plans to give you hope in the future? And so I'm saying, it's like, aren't we supposed to be bringing hope to the nations? And I, I, I just, does it bother you that the guy who's an atheist doesn't believe in God? I mean, he said that right on TED Talk, that he's the guy that's laying awake at night thinking, wow, we should go to Mars. Think I'll build a rocket. And I'm simply saying, I'm simply saying, how about if we get out of that denominational spirit and we begin to turn our minds on and we begin to think like no one's ever thunk before. Is that our, (laughs) it's a new word right there. I'm like, what would happen if the people of God, the new creation, like people who have the mind of Christ that think from another dimension, what would happen if we actually got in the car and started it? Like we didn't just sit there and play the radio like, wasn't that good? Yeah, maybe we're supposed to be doing something. And I don't know about you, but I was born to change the world. I wake up every day. I drive my wife crazy. And like, She's like, how was, how was work today? Oh, we didn't change the world today. We need to change the world. And I, I was in a room with a bunch of city leaders. And some, most of them were believers. They invited me to this meeting. I'd never been there before to, with them. And we're, you know, we have this finished with this. We're a church of 9,000 in a city of 90,000. And our city is, 
is not well off. This city's in serious trouble, especially two years ago. I'm meeting with these men, and these are the leaders of our city. And we're sitting around, and they're, they're leading the meeting. I got invited just to come. So I'm sitting there, and they're, and they're like, yeah, things are bad. And someone suggests, you know, like, like a possible solution. They go, oh, that didn't work. We tried that last time. And they're going on for like 45 minutes. And you know, I was invited. But I'm an American. And finally, they're talking about, you know, I mean, every solution like that won't work. That won't work. And I finally, I stand up and they're all. Um, I didn't think at all. But later, I think I don't think they'll invite me back. And I slammed my hand down on the desk and I said, the problem with our city is not money. It's small thinking. I said, Elon Musk is going to put colonize Mars by 2040. And we're talking about shifting our economy there's 9,000 people in our church alone, plus all the other people that you guys have. And there's only 90,000 people in our community. And if 9,000 people can't shift a community of 90,000, the whole world is lost. And I look, I said, you guys, you're the problem. This is the reason our city's in trouble, because you think little. And you're all afraid to do something amazing. And I said, I don't want to be a part of any of that. So then, then it got quiet. <laughs> and I sat down and I'm like, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have tweeted that. <laughs> and one guy goes, you know, he's right. You know, we've been in this city for 30 years and we've done nothing. And pretty soon the, the other guy's like, yeah, we've, he's right. We've got to have courage. And they start talking about courage and that leadership has to be courageous and has to come with new ideas and has to try something. And the other guy goes, Why don't, we should just try this. I mean, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We'll just do it differently. And pretty soon they're like talking about, well, let's try that idea and why don't we do this too? And they leave my office like talking about solutions. And I just got a text message a few minutes ago. Bethel gave 500000 to our city police department. And there was all this pushback like, why are you funding the police? Ah, da, da. You know, the government should fund them. And then we raised another 600000 And, you know, and people were like, a bunch of people were not with us. Well, four other organizations just in the last two weeks raised $1.2 million for another project for the police department and the justice department. And, you know, I just got a text from one of the, one of the people and they said, you guys were resisted, but once you broke through, all other organizations, most of them, none of them Christian, not churches, they all said, well, if they can do it, we should do it. And they got together, and they did different projects. And already 1.2 million was given this last month from other organizations. And what I'm getting that is that nobody thought our idea was good. And, and they pushed back and said we were all crazy, and they wouldn't even join us. They wouldn't give to our, they wouldn't give to our fund. But then they started to see what was happening, how the police were turning around, our crimes dropping dramatically in the last three months. I mean, crazy things are happening. We got our new police chief. And, and what I'm getting at is that we have to be courageous believers. Because that's how we're going to change history. So, amen. Why don't you stand? I've talked so long tonight. God bless Churchill. I went to his home. He wasn't there. (laughs) Lord, I just pray that you would cause this flock to be an apostolic flock. 
Lord, I pray that signs and wonders and miracles, they would be like so common. And Lord, that we would have big thinkers in here. Lord, that you would break the political spirit and the religious spirit and that we would be dreamers who dream again. I pray that we would dream the dreams of God for our city, for our country, for our church, and that we would come with the best solutions. Lord, you gave us power to make wealth, that we might, that you might confirm your covenant with us. And I pray that we would have a wealth mentality. Nothing's impossible with God. All things are possible with God. And Lord, I pray that we become a covenant people. That we wouldn't be fickle, but we would be people like, we're with you. And we're with you when you make a bad statement. We're still with you. And we're with you when you wear your coveralls without your underwear. We're still with you. We're with you when you don't get it right. And we're with you when you get it right. We're with you. And Lord, let us create a culture where people can make mistakes and still be with us. Let us create a culture of risk where people can try and get it wrong and still be celebrated as people who tried. Lord, let us be people like Churchill. Let us be ch- people like like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, people who rocked history, Martin Luther King. Lord, let us be people who step out of the crowd and make a difference because you called us to be world changers and history makers. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so very much.